0: I'm Linnea. and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.
1: This is Death by DVD, and you are listening to Boldly Going Nowhere. Death by DVD does Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I am your host, Hank, the world's greatest, and... Hold on.
0: Receiving incoming transmission. Receiving incoming transmission.
1: It appears that we are receiving a transmission from the USS Excelsior. (laughs) ah
2: well would you look at
1: that it's
2: alexander nash no no no. this is christian slater i'm christian slater just randomly christian slater popping up on this podcast he'll do anything it's a real shame i didn't think of that beforehand
1: because he really will do anything a box of cheez its and some fucking weed and i'm sure i could have gotten
2: him on the show
0: <laughs> and
2: uh, you want me to talk about star trek six uh my mom I was a casting agent on it, and I just kind of showed up. That's the entire Christian Slater story. Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country.
1: I have misspoken, I believe, on the show by saying Star Trek Four is the weakest in the series. It might be this one. It very well might be this one.
2: I don't know. I wouldn't call it probably the weakest, because the filmmaking, I think, is on point in this one especially. And I think the story itself is It's an entertaining movie. But it doesn't feel hundred percent like Star Trek. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of like diplomacy stuff. It's an adventure. It gets kind of back to the uh, Wrath of Khan days, and it feels a lot more like um, a lot more like an episode of Next Gen. Which coincidentally enough, this was like the end of the Shatner verse, and like they were kind of handing the whole thing over to uh, the Next Gen people after this. Uh, even though it had been on the year for a few years at that point, but that's the problem I have with it. Just it doesn't have any like particularly deeper meanings other than like Cold War allegory. All right, uh, maybe because Kirk like Kirk has to had it have it stuck to him one more time, and he has to learn another lesson that uh, all Klingons are not bad, and being a vengeful asshole will get you nowhere and will cause your soul to have cancer. That's pretty much the entire arc of Kirk in this one. Wow, it gives a whole new meaning to ACAB. All
1: Klingons are bastards. I kind of like that. That should be a Star Trek t-shirt. I've got to delete this off the show so I can make it a Star Trek t-shirt and no one steal my idea. Um, <laughs> I think my biggest issue with the movie is how we differ greatly from Gene Roddenberry's universe. And I, we say this on every episode. When I entered this, when we began recording these and, and trekking the stars, I was very not familiar. Very not familiar. I'd seen Wrath of Khan when I was like seven, maybe parts of it. That's I had no knowledge of this show. And now I've, I've grown a great deal of interest with it. I've really gotten to respect the characters and the universe. I'm watching the original series just for pure pleasure. And I really feel this film greatly and drastically has moved away from the ideas and uh, the foundation and the backbone of what Star Trek originally, what Gene wanted this, this thing to be. No racism, we have moved past a point of conflict and wars and money and capitalism and everyone lives and a happy, peaceful society, and Captain Kirk quotes fucking Hitler in this movie. Uh, <laughs> like, there's a, it seems like they waited for Gene to die to immediately go do all the things that he, which, I mean, every child does when their parents tell them not to do something. Don't smoke, then they're gonna go smoke. And that's just what happened here. The, the parent's back was turned, well, dead. He died. <laughs> it was, wasn't like he was looking the other way. He fucking died. And they just kind of ran with it. They brought Nick Meyer back, who did Wrath of Khan, and it's got a very nautical feel, a very militaristic feel, which does help. You have to give credit for him introducing and bringing in the new uniforms in Wrath of Khan. It does it does establish things. I mean, the, the uniforms and the, the style that we get in Wrath of Khan because of Nick Meyer, I think, has been used forever, ever since, even going into the news shows and the prequel series with scott Bakula and all all sort of stuff like that so it's it's revolutionary it's very helpful to what we as fans have grown to enjoy but star trek 6 is just so militaristic to me it really feels like a a tom clancy sort of situation and that sucks for star trek i really want adventure and science and hope and this movie is like wow fuck
2: (laughs) everyone's dying this sucks somebody's trying to Fuck over Kirk and the Federation. That's what's going on. It's just, it's a spy move more than like I don't know. It it could be like a James Bond type plot. It's kind of interchangeable with all those things. And don't find that quite as interesting as you know, alien worlds, science, philosophy, and all that. And it's just, it's so much about plot as so well. And as far as Star Trek goes, I could give a shit about plot. I, I like plot to me is irrelevant. It's what are we going to be saying about the human condition? What are we going to be saying about these different themes that they've been working with over the years? And so much of this one is just about, we need to make peace with the Russians. Okay. I mean, I don't disagree with that, especially in like 1991 at that time and all, but but for Star Trek, it's like, whatever, dude. Like, give me an intergalactic AI that, needs fucking fuck a dude to understand what life is all about. That's a fucking concept. This is, I don't know, just, there's not much to it, although I do enjoy the performances. I like Christopher Plummer in it. I enjoy uh, David Warner. I enjoy Kurtwood Smith playing a uh, very odd-looking alien. I enjoy a lot of the aspects of it, but it just, there's nothing for me to sink my teeth into as far as a philosophic stance or a concept that hasn't been done before. And I think that's the real key to it is this has been done in other genres and other movies before. And something like Star Trek five, that's not really something we would have in too many movies or something like even Star Trek three to another extent, Star Trek one, even Star Trek four, that's an environmental message. And at the time there wasn't a lot of environmental films, um, in the, uh, mid to late 80s. And this is just kind of like espionage nonsense. Yeah, I can't think of any other
1: whale-based Greenpeace-backed movie that came out in the
2: 1980s. Maybe some stuff in the seventh like, Phase 4, of, or uh, No Blade of Grass. I mean, there there's some like Echo-style fucking like horror and science fiction things. But th- th- that was, it's very granola Star Trek 4. It's very much of uh, hug a hug-a-whale type situation and there really hadn't been too many movies of that ilk around then um but star trek six is just it's like they got really locked up in the pressure of star wars and that's what it feels like it feels more like uh, if you take all the mysticism out of star wars and it just becomes about rebels versus the you know intergalactic evil blah 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 that's kind of what star trek six kind of feels like it ends up feeling like um just could be a Star Wars movie. You take all the uh, Jedi mysticism stuff. And we kind of heavily focus on um, trying to solve a mystery and not like a scientific or philosophic mystery, like Spock going around the Enterprise uh, looking for clues like he's Sherlock Holmes. I think grounding it in reality, or at least at the time period,
1: current reality, is really what causes it to be slightly problematic because it takes so much from what was happening in the late 80s with Russia, Chernobyl explosion, the Russians were, for the first time, showing what you could say is weakness, that beforehand they never needed help from anyone, and initially, just like in this movie, when there is an incident, the Russians completely lied, like, ah, eh, nothing that bad happened there there was a little bit of an explosion but everybody's okay don't worry about it and of course in days to come they had to reach out to the rest of the world because if you don't know what chernobyl was a nuclear reactor blew up in russia and that is seriously devastating and that's what happens at the beginning of this film pretty much a, a reactor on a klingon moon their most special moon It's not what it's called it's called pra- it's the moon is called praxis so everything mirrors reality to the extent that If you remember history, it becomes kind of quaint and a little boring. And it's once you connect all these dots, it's like, oh, Gorkin, he's Gorbachev. Ah, clever writing. Nick Meyer, look at you, you genius. Check out the big brain on Brad.
0: You're a smart motherfucker.
1: There's a point in the movie where I said earlier, Kirk quotes Hitler Spock makes a joke that only Nixon can go to China. Why the fuck in twenty twenty ninety three are we talking about goddamn Richard Nixon in space? And so I guess there's a lot of pet peeves that I have with this movie, small things that annoy me. But the overall experience, I will say, is genuinely pleasant. Uh, the whodunit nature of it, though, I agree with you that is annoying. The entire thing is annoying. You've got that really great scene at the beginning of the movie where Kim Cattrall is obviously having, like, a a panic attack. She is showing a great deal of emotion and comes to talk to Spock, who is so, in his own thoughts, in his own mind, he doesn't even notice what's going to happen. And right after this, the mystery begins to happen. There's a crime that's committed on board one of the Klingon ships. One of the Klingon ships. The Klingon ship with their grand galactic emperor dude, played by David Warner, again, It's not like we didn't just see him in the last movie and couldn't recognize the guy. This time, he's a Klingon. Still, it's David Warner, so I'm willing to let that slide. It's enjoyable. In fact, you actually have a lot of returning cast. I think Brock Peters comes back as Admiral Cartwright, who we haven't seen since the first movie. I know they wanted Kirstie Alley to return as the Lieutenant Valorous. They wanted it to be Savick, which would have been, I guess... ...an emotional ploy, like, alright, we're gonna bring somebody back that we know is is trustworthy and safe... ...and they're gonna turn out to be a fanatical right-wing extremist. Because at the core of it, this movie is supposed to be about change. The whole point of this movie is supposed to be change, but to me, it's an example of right-wing extremists. <laughs> it's, that's, this is what happens when two extremists on opposite parties meet. That these people are, uh, again, making an allegory to history... If when the Russians fell, the Cold War and all that stuff ends and communism goes away, what happens to the millions and trillions of dollars of weapons that they've invested in? We're supposed to be living in Star Trek in a society where there is no war, there is no money, uh, everybody is doing things for the betterment of their races, their societies. So it introduces a lot of real-life conflict and real-life problems that Gene Roddenberry had put his foot down over. And when you look at all the other movies and you look at how they had to write... They had to write in a society where there were no wars, where there wasn't bloodshed, and there wasn't constant problems with capitalism, and it made things much more interesting when you had to sit down and come up with an actual fucking story, and in this case, I'm not saying there's not an actual story, but it's it's an espionage thing. You know, it's just what you said. It's all smoke and mirrors, and it's it's exciting. The score has even changed, that we don't have our usual Star Trek adventurous score that leads into this. It's a very moody and brooding, kind of dark and war-torn sort of thing. It feels like you're going to watch a, a a 1950s, a golden age Hollywood, escape whodunit sort of movie. I mean, Kirk and Bones have to go to the fucking gulag and escape. It just seems so... Kirk gets in yeah, fist fight
2: weird. to 60s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really used to like this film. I liked it when I first saw it in the theater. I think it was the first Star Trek movie I saw in the theater, actually. And I watched it. I was like, oh, I really like this. Uh, like, this is like my favorite Star Trek film. But it was also like 10 years old. And that explains a lot because as you grow older, it's like, no, I really appreciate the ones that are actually about something as opposed to just being kind of like an enjoyable Sunday matinee at the movies. And that's what this pretty inexplicably is is just it's a matinee film and it's just not quite as interesting to me as it being more philosophical i will say though it does have some great kirk shit in it uh the whole thing with him and spock talking about the klingons and they their race could die off and kirk just let them die let them die (laughs) it's just like that's a really great little piece of performance from uh william shatner and it really kind of gets into his head about how he feels about, like, the death of his son, um, how he's felt about, like, you know, basically doing all these little miniature battles over the years with Klingons and uh, having run-ins with them and how much trouble they've caused them. And he's just like, well, fuck them. And then he has to come around he's like, no, that's the wrong attitude to have, which is true. I mean, it's, you can't just, I mean... You can't sell out all of your values of what you believe in, your Gene Roddenberry values, because uh, a random Klingon, a Klingon that wasn't even acting in um, in reverence to the uh, the actual Klingon Federation, killed your son. That doesn't mean all Klingons are bad and all of that shit. It's just, sorry, that was just a random one-off, buddy, and you cannot like put a. Kind of a humanitarian crisis on an entire species of aliens because one of them fucked you over. You've got to learn and grow from that. And it's, you know, it's time to ex- some Klingon refugees into your life and let them into the Federation. And then when now we got Worf, and he's like kind of a brick. Great grandpa
1: Worf. Yeah, I think. Hold on. I lost. I had a thought and suddenly I started thinking about Worf. <laughs> Well, it's kind of like when you have somebody in your life that says, "I I don't like Mexicans," and you ask them, "Well, well, why? What's the problem?" Well, my friend lost a job to Mexicans. You don't even have a real story. You don't have anything
2: to base it on, and it's what what I that's an anecdote. That is not evidence that are taking jobs one job got taken from one guy so you don't
1: like an entire group of people because of the story or something that your friend might have told you and of course that's not the same with captain kirk anybody could have killed his son and his hate would have been the same or that opens a great question would it if a man had killed him from earth if a human being had killed him would it be the same xenophobia would it be the same rage but what makes everything interesting in the situation that they're all everyone the whole universe pretty much is in is this isn't a declaration or an act of war the Klingons weren't doing something they weren't supposed to be doing an absolute accident happened and after an extended period of time they finally come forward with it knowing one their accident could cause damage to the known universe or galaxy and It's like Chernobyl, that the whole area to this day will kill you if you go there. It's radioactive, and that is seeping into the core of the Earth and poisoning it and killing it. So it's a a big detrimental thing. They know they need help, and they're willing to take the help. And it's not just Shatner. You've got Admiral Cartwright and several other people. One is a Romulan, I believe. Admiral Cartwright and, of course, Kirk are both human beings. But this is kind of an interstellar thing. These people are not in agreement with what... Ambassador Sarek wants to do and what Spock wants to do with the Federation in the future. It's not a matter of, well, let's go in there and kill them. These guys want to watch them suffer and die because they're old guard and for 20-some-odd years they've been surfing the edge of the galaxy fighting with these guys and clashing with them. They're all old cowboys who aren't willing to take the new ways of the future. And this, I think, is a real big conflict with the writing of the movie because it seems even... Like, Nick Meyer was making a a reference to the fact that we are not going to be continuing things the Gene Roddenberry way, and had characters like Spock, who was part of the Gene Roddenberry old guard that wanted peace, that wanted fluency, and they had to kind of change things up. I mean, even Chekhov at one point seems very disturbed and upset that Klingons are coming aboard the
2: ship. So it's not really centralized just to the Shatner character of Kirk. I think... Oh, it's everybody. Yeah. It's that Cold War mentality of don't trust the Russians, don't trust the Russians. And it's, in this instance, it's don't trust any Klingon. And the Klingons have been a pain in the ass for the Federation, but at the same time, you have to look at it as somewhat like imperialism as you're coming into their territory and you're wagging your dick and said join the Federation, join... The- we don't want to join the Federation. The Klingons have a bit of a point. I'm not saying they're right in any instances, because, I mean, they are a warlike people, a lot of different issues um, as a species, as an alien race. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you can completely dismiss them. You can't dismiss every single Klingon, because the acting government of Klingon, whatever the fucking name of the planet is, Kal-a-la, whatever the hell is, is not acting in your best interest. But they are seemingly trying to benefit, you know, with what they think is the best interest. So you have to kind of work. Like, two things don't have to be simultaneously true. Yes, the Klingons are doing bad things, but that also doesn't mean all Klingons are bad. So, I mean, it's...
1: Well, we don't uh, even
2: really know what the bad things the
1: Klingons do. All we know is that they, from our side, what we have seen, have been a bit of a thorn in the side of the Federation. But talking, again, about some real-life events... I don't want to come off like I'm on anybody's fucking side here, but you had these fellas called the Mujahideen and then the Taliban, and a lot of things are happening in Afghanistan, similar to what happened in the Vietnam War. We, the United States of America, are sending in choppers to pull people out as the country falls to these rebels. Now, we know as Americans, not all of our audiences, but Alexander Nash and I, what these people are responsible for, 9-11, a lot of horrible things in the last 20 years, ISIS just the same, But we don't study these people. We don't know where they came from. And when you start looking at it, it's, oh, well, they became fanatics and they became really mad because we bombed the living shit out of their country to get the Russians out and then fucking abandoned them and let them rot. So what happened before all this? And I know there's prequel shows that explain and go into the mythos of who the Klingons are. But up to this point, all we've really seen is what we've been allowed to see. We don't know anything of their culture. We don't know anything of who they are. I mean, I personally have always seen them a bit like Vikings, that they're very misunderstood. They're known for their pillaging and war and their fighting, but there's a lot more to them as a people than just pillaging and war and fighting. We just don't know what it is. So this entire situation... You even see with the people on Earth, uh, the Federation members, that they don't exactly know what to believe. There is a good chance that Kirk very well could have committed this atrocity thinking that he was about to retire and was going to get away with it. And that just overcomplicates, I think, the nature of the story and who our characters are, because we shouldn't have to question anything. I feel like an audience member, like I'm one of the Enterprise crew on the last movie with Spock's brother, and I don't know who to believe. I don't know if all my pain is going to go away or what, and that's really... I don't want to say tasteless uh, because, I mean, Nick Meyer is a really talented writer, but it comes off to me a little tasteless to make me question the, the crew of the Enterprise. I don't want to question these guys. They are my heroes. You shouldn't have to wonder, did
2: Kirk do this? Or why would Kirk do this? And uh, like earlier you said, uh, you're making a little quip about all Klingons are bastards. Here's the difference, though. That's not entirely true because, you know, Klingons, you just need to understand them. All Romulans are bastards because Romulans are dicks to everyone all the time. I think the only time I've really
1: experienced a Romulan is in this movie. Do we do we see them? No, there's no in the other ones. So this we have the Romulan ambassador, this this balding guy with crazy. eyebrows. um, He's a
2: dick. The Kelvin shit, you know, the Chris Pine, uh, the first movie main bad guys are Romulan. The Romulans are like. They've never really gotten their justice, as far as I know, because I've never gotten into the Voyager They made peace in Voyager with Rom- Romulans, but always end up being fucking dicks. Yeah, so.
1: I just thought the villain in that movie was a SoundCloud rapper. I, I didn't pay much attention to the Kelvin Universe film. Bringing that up, this film kind of feels like one of those. Maybe that's sort of the problem. I've seen the first Kelvin Universe movie in theaters. I think I've brought that up a few times, so I don't have a firm grasp of what happens, but it's very action based it's very based on the technology of the ships and things exploding and everybody's got to be funny and we've got to really reintroduce the characters i know sulu's sword fights like he does in episode 2 or is it episode 3 of the original series it doesn't matter it's just one big homage to the previous series and this itself like they're retiring we're losing our heroes and it is sort of like a clip show when things come together the editing and all that's fine i don't mean to insult that but it just feels like a bunch of sparse and sporadic ideas crammed together, like, alright, well, maybe this moon explodes, and, uh, we gotta help the Klingons, and, well, you know, Kirk doesn't like Klingons, so, well, well, they have to have a dinner together, and there's gonna be blue spaghetti, and, and, oh, and then after the blue spaghetti, let's kill the Klingon! It, it feels, like, I've said this many times before, it feels like a, an excited six-year-old is telling you a story, and they keep interrupting it to add more and more ridiculous shit until it gets to the end, and then the movie just ends. <laughs> like it's one of the most flat endings of the series like oh yeah by the way uh, Kurt does
2: a, like a, a super cool like um secret service like lunge at the uh, the ambassador and saves him from
1: assassin's bullet and then you would expect like a Huey Lewis and the News song to start playing or something and it just fade <laughs> out when everybody jumps in the air and high fives it <laughs> it really has that it's sort the of the ending feeling. of the last
2: boy scout no like um i i'd say this is the most visually interesting out of the Star Trek movies that, like, the original cast, I mean, like, they spent it seems like, a lot of time on costuming and alien design and designing different props and things like that, and I really do appreciate in this film. I think it is a little bit more visually interesting lighting. It's just, it doesn't go anywhere, and I think it just says more about the broad move of all entertainment. I mean, this was 91. I mean, it's the same year Terminator 2 came out, so we're moving more towards just feckless, dumb fuck action entertainment throughout the, like, you know, picking up the 90s and through the 2000s. And, I mean, go watch any modern, like, you know, studio, big budget, like, action thing. And it's just, like, they don't have any heart. They really don't have too many ideas. I mean, you occasionally get a film like that, and those should be rightfully celebrated, but so much of it is... And I will like some of the Marvel stuff, I think has some good writing. That's some interesting um, ideas put forth, but there's so much noise. And if you look at, um, cause I've never watched a uh, Star Trek discovery on CBS, the, the newer show, but I have seen a lot of clips from Star Trek discovery and I see a lot of fucking space battles, like, you know, hundreds of ships shooting lasers and shit at each other. It's like, when was this ever part of Star Trek? This is about exploratory missions. Why are we firing at everybody? Why is everybody, like, having a fucking space battle? We don't need space battles in Star Trek. We need talking. We need, uh, like, humanity. We need, like, concepts and, like, learning something about, like, different species and different ideas and not, like, shoot each other with space rays because, like, my family member got killed and shit. And it's just, I think... Part 6 is enjoyable as a jump into that action genre, but I also think it was the setup for things to just get worse over the years. Of, and that says something for all Though
0: By the sack of Seric, we've been attacked in the middle of an episode.
1: Shields up, computer. Bring the enemy on screen.
0: Uh, it's Klingons. <laughs> uh, does, uh, does,
1: does anyone on board actually speak Klingon? Because you know I took it back in college. In fact, I, I I was like the head of my class back in college. But it's been a while, and I I'm a little rusty, so I don't exactly know what they're, uh, saying. You know what? Hey! Hey! Computer! Computer! Can you translate that Klingon for us?
0: Okay. A thank you would be nice.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, ooh, uh, there's a lot more important things that
0: uh, uh, come in oh, right oh, now. They're like the demon. Human. It is now time for David oh.
1: Oh, for crying out loud, is this just a segue into Keith David or David Keith? Oh, yeah, looks like it. I guess so. You know, I think we could have done this without shooting our ship. 37 crewmen died.
0: In 1994's Raw Justice, Mayor Stiles' daughter Donna is killed the night after a lousy date with the shy Mitch. Of course, this makes him the main suspect. When Mitch gets free on bail, Stiles hires ex-cop Mace to follow him. Mace learns immediately that someone's after Mitch's life, and after his and prostitute Sarah's two as soon as they've been seen together. Unfortunately, it's a cop who's after them, murdering witnesses and faking evidence against Mace. It's kill or be killed. Who plays the ex-cop bounty hunter, Mace? Is it Keith David, or is it David Keith? Well take me out to a pretty field, tell me to look at the flowers, and pull the trigger cause it's David Keith! Aren't you glad we aren't playing DeForest Kelly or William Shatner anymore? I am. Oh boy, I am. This is all I've got! Well, until next time, thanks for playing another space battle of a round of Keith David Oh David Keith! Live long and prosper, and now back to Hank.
1: Oh, that certainly was exhilarating. In the meantime, we've gotten the fires put out and are assessing the damage. Let's see if we can get Alexander Nash's transmission back from the USS Excelsior. Yeah, that's right. In the 23rd century, we are still using Skype even in space. That's why the connection is so spotty on this episode, if you couldn't tell. Aha. Maybe this entire thing was just an excuse to talk about why the sound was not good on this episode. Who knows? I don't. Oh,
0: uh, oh, uh About.
1: uh, there he is, there he is. Let's hone in on that signal now.
2: Catch me riding dirty, catch me riding dirty, dirty, gonna catch me riding dirty. But this is the point where the the device starts happening and we start getting into just kind of like more, more, more stuff. I mean, think about original Star Trek films. You would get a fairly static shot of the Enterprise falling through maybe some interesting vistas in the background, some interesting matte paintings and stuff. What you didn't get was Enterprise doing fucking crazy turns and flipping over and shooting fucking torpedoes all the goddamn time. They were like... They actually had strategy in battles. There just seems to be no strategy in any of this stuff now. It's just kind of like a trans movie where it's just like shit everywhere because CGI is so prevalent and we can just render anything. So let's just make every bit of the screen as complicated visually as possible with noise. And I find that not interesting at all. Not even close to interesting. It's just messy and boring i really think star trek's
1: legacy prior to this is in, is based on gene roddenberry and he his absolute fight and striving for a very specific he was a future. bit of a prick
2: too i will admit that though we can't leave that out that roddenberry i mean he's he's not like a demigod of this. he was also a bit of an asshole so i think it's you know take Yeah, I
1: mean, I guess in my sense, more or less, is when they pitched Star Trek and they wanted to get this off the ground, they had to kind of guise it as wagon train in space. And that's why the initial pilot wasn't successful, that it was too thought provoking. It was too emotional and audiences weren't going to connect with it. They want to see the cowboys fighting in the stars. So Lucille Ball was the money behind this and Desilu Studios. She stepped up and had something unheard of done a second pilot, and this is where we introduce Captain Kirk, William Shatner as Captain Kirk for that fact, and the show takes a huge right turn. It does become wagon train in space, at least for the first season or so, and it then slowly starts to meld into the more scientific thing that we understand and know to be Star Trek today. With Gene gone at this point, to me, it just shows that People really aren't that different. He fought for years to keep it from being wagon train in space, and the second he dies, everyone gradually turns it directly into that, and now what you were discussing with the news shows and the, the Kelvin Universe movies, that's all it is. It's just coming up with an excuse to pull the gun out and have a battle. thats uh, It's surprising that they don't even have the old Western soundtracks playing in the background, and the ships are just excuses to do cool horse tricks and stuff like that. It, there's no point and there's no reason for it aside from Everything just turns out to be the same way. How much can we
2: milk this? Can we get money out of this? It's literally, a scene in Star Trek and Darkness where Spock, with a mean, angry look on his face, beats the every loving piss out of Khan. You know, logical Spock, the science officer who's just doing like a fucking karate fight scene? When is, why would Spock ever fight anybody?
1: Well, he does beat a woman in, like, like just, episode two know. of the show. <laughs> he, he violently beats up this chick who is not a chick. It's Dr. McCoy's former lover, and her body and visage has been taken over by a monster that sucks all the salt out of human bodies until they die. And he smacks... Salt the, vampire. Yeah, pretty much salt vampire. And he backhands and smacks the live and, and shit out of this woman several times to try and show McCoy, who he also learns nickname is Plum, something that I've have to call him from now on. Good old Plum McCoy. (laughs) And it's pretty insane. But that too, I mean, this is a bit too much back history, but that too, like Spock didn't become our Spock that we know well until maybe mid season one, season two, or her is trying to bang him in the early episodes. He, He hangs out in the mess hall with a harp and jams and they sing songs. It's a very weird, different, dramatic, all the while being funny universe. And I think Star Trek 5 and Star Trek 6, 5 especially, because 5 has a really strange sense of humor. Uh, Spock's mannerisms are almost puppy-like. Everybody has weird one-liners, and it's Shatner. It's all Shatner's touch, and, like, the beginning of the film has that weird joke where he's trying to get his coat hung up, and there's nowhere to hang a coat up, so you just see his daughter walking around with his fucking jacket throughout the scene for, like, a good five minutes. Just weird, non-sequitur sort of things. And then this movie, it takes itself so seriously. We were laughing last time, and now it's like, well, what the fuck? Kirk's are racist, we're stuck on this weird Klingon ice planet, which I will say it's nice to finally see something that's not a desert planet. Every fucking space movie, it's always a desert <laughs> or a jungle. We got an ice planet this time. And they have to escape from it. Iman shows up, which I don't... Just, I like you. I have nothing against her. I like Iman. I like David Bowie. But it's just all this weird, let's see how many famous people we can get in this movie to get young people to watch it. Like, oh, look. Yeah,
2: aliens we can cram into it as well. This one, I have more aliens per capita than the other Star Trek film, I think. And of course, Kirk has to kick one of the aliens
1: in his balls, which is his knees that's our humor we we go from at least having a little bit of fun on the last movie to it's either juvenile humor or very dramatic whodunit and it feels like a Sherlock Holmes story and that's just kind of annoying to me I <laughs> I don't need that with Star Trek and everything is about mystery I mean we we could say the same thing for the first film, we know nothing of what V'ger is, we don't know what it's capable of doing, we don't know until the very end, And but that itself, is it so much a whodunit, or is it Kirk wiping dirt off the satellite? Those
2: are broader mysteries, though, because those are, like, large-scale, like, universal mysteries, and not, like, Clue. Who gives a shit who did what on the fucking interview? What?! Like, what is this? Well, they're they're trying to make the, the federations go into war and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I, and I've said this on this show plenty of time, that is plot, that is not story. And I am not interested in plot because plot are not very interesting because it's like, I know Hank hasn't watched many of them, but I have seen all the Star Wars movies for the most part. Um, the last three that I know everybody fucking hates, whatever uh, I didn't think they were terrible, but the last one I'd never finished I got so goddamn tired of watching uh, What it, what is the name of it, the, not the last Jedi it's the one after the last Jedi I don't know, the, do you remember? the Emperor's not dead, I don't know
1: yeah, I cannot oh, remember. I have a fucking Rise computer in Jedi? front of me uh, it's, I don't remember. Uh, Star Wars movies, we're going to Google ladies and gentlemen
2: but anyway, it doesn't matter. This shit was nothing but plot. The was, Rise of Skywalker. This. Okay, The Rise of Skywalker. When I watched The Rise of Skywalker, and I was just kind of passively watching it, but it was just like, first five minutes, we gotta do this to get this to do this, and then we go to another planet so we can get this thing, so we can go to another planet to have thing explained, so we can go to this other planet to do... It's just like, it's just setting up nonsense busy work for people to do. And I found that I never finished it because I was like bored. And that's what I don't want Star Trek to be. And that's when it ends up being a little bit more like "of oh, we got to do this to go here. Da-da-da. I want a story that tells me something about humanity, about philosophy, about metaphors, about religion, you know, just like actual interesting questions throughout life. And this is just like it. it takes five minutes to say, hey, Kirk's a little bit racist here. And that's about as far as we go on any of that shit. And then it just becomes about Clue and who done it bullshit. Yeah, the end of the
1: movie doesn't even really have any justification of Kirk's behavior and mannerisms. I mean, like, quoting Hitler is something that is unredeemable. And he doesn't learn a lesson. It's not like, well, you know what? After all, I think I can love the Klingons. He only does what he does because it's his job. And he knows that's his job, that he has to instill peace. And he's not going to let this continue anymore. There's no greater overall message where he had to sit down and learn something thought-provoking. He's still pissed a Klingon killed his son and thinks they're all bastards, but his job is not a grand architect of war. His job isn't to put the future into darkness and send children out into their deaths from both sides. He at least has enough respect as somebody that's that's a a true professional to do that, but I don't think he learned anything, and that's kind of dangerous that we could just go on with this whole idea of, yeah, fucking Kirk read Mein Kampf, and I guess there were a few passages he memorized. That's <laughs> disturbing. <laughs> I don't like that.
2: <laughs> what? Spock, have you ever heard of 1488? <laughs> uh, what do like, you think like, about eugenics, Spock? Some weird places, man.
1: Um, it looks like maybe Gene Roddenberry was an asshole, but there might have been some good in his asshole nature, but even in the television show, which I've obviously been watching, the second pilot is a very interesting story because Kirk pretty much has to kill his best friend who obtains what I would call godlike powers, and throughout the episode he, he calls himself, I'm gonna become a god, and Kirk has to come up with an idea ...of what to do, and Spock, who is emotionless, tells him... ...well, we just need. There's a planet that's completely abandoned... ...we're just gonna dump him there, and if you don't want to do that... ...we need to go shoot him right now. And obviously Kirk is really upset by this, but he has to come to terms with it... ...and by the end of the episode, he learns his lesson... ...which is the exact same lesson we learned in Wrath of Khan... ...you gotta think of everybody else. So I think he kind of does that in this movie, obviously with the end of it... ...like, all right, I, I gotta think of the big picture here. But that, when it was done the first time, introduced us to the fact that Kirk can change that was 25 fucking years ago and we're still in the same dilemma having the same problem where he can't come up with a solution and has to rely on spock and then gets mad about what spock has to say and then does what fucking spock tells him to do we've come nowhere we, we just <laughs> went right back to the beginning of the story
2: but as we sit here and take a big old greasy dump on <laughs> Star Trek Six. i didn't think it was going to turn out this way but it, it is <laughs> We don't like. I at least I don't. Know, I'm not going to speak for Hank, but I don't hate this movie. I don't hate it at all. Oh, yeah, I really I, I find it entertaining. Definitely, I'd say three out of five stars. Maybe, maybe three and a half maximum. But it's an enjoyable watch. I'm not saying watch it. It's just if you're talking about broader Star Trek themes and ideas, this just ain't it. It's just whatever. It's just kind of like uh, this could have been easily an episode. Of Star Trek like a two-parter it, it just feels more like next-gen to me and I, I'm not the biggest next-gen fan that's kind of the reason is I mean this feels a hell of a lot like all the next-gen movies which I personally just couldn't get into
1: Every movie was pretty much made with no thought of a next film, that they would run and gun. They would get things together, even to the extent that the sets were mostly destroyed. Now, going into the fifth movie, they started to realize "Eh, every two years we're making another one. Let's just put this shit in a dry dock and not destroy it, which works out to the benefit of everyone involved. I feel maybe and this is just my my thoughts and opinions on this, that when they came up with this film, when they designed this movie, that this this is a problem, they didn't design it as its own thing. That, okay, well, the next generation has finally become successful, and it wasn't for its first two, maybe three seasons. It didn't really catch on with people. So at this point, even the film itself, like, oh, we've got Worf's grandfather, a great-grandfather. I think they were trying to set the whole universe into fully mixing together. Like, all right, we've ended this movie, but we'll continue it with the next one, where they meet up with the next generation crew a hundred years later. And things like that eventually happen. It is the next actual Star Trek movie when that happens. I just feel that maybe that is is the problem here, that they tried to set this up to become an expansive universe like Star Wars, like every movie's connecting and it's all got these linear plots that move together and that just didn't work. That's the beautiful thing about the the first four movies is that they all managed to tell a story, but it was sort of coincidental. Every time that they sat down to write, they had to go back and backwrite things to the extent that when they were killing Spock, Harve Bennett went to Leonard Nimoy and said, can you just come up with anything, just something that might be able to bring you back if we need to? And that was the whole remember with Dr. Bones sequence. It's clever writing, and I was babbling about this earlier. Being forced to have rules and write inside of those rules, I think, served and made a much more productive series and a much more enjoyable series. Not that this movie isn't enjoyable, Um, you know, backing up what you just said, I like it. I enjoy watching it. I watched it twice this week, and I had a lot of fun doing so, but it's just. It's a bad taste in your mouth when you finish. You you spend ten minutes thinking about it after you walk away, and you're still kind of fumbling around. It, so Kirk's still kind of a racist. This is weird, and that's the thing. i <laughs> you, you know, you just linger on that. Like, oh well, I guess, I guess at least Picard's not a Nazi. <laughs> and you're, what do you do? I mean, oh well, Scott Bakula still seems like a good guy, and Kirk is just a
2: nationalist. I'm not. Nazi. I just believe that humans need to own planet and keep the goddamn dirty Klingons off it and we build a wall around the entire globe. Yeah,
1: that's really where it comes off at the end of this film. But I'm like, not a Nazi! I don't hate them, I just don't want my kids dating them. It's... <laughs> well, he doesn't have to worry about that though, because David's dead. Rest in peace. Star Trek 5.
2: It's... Weird dark. <laughs> so I think you hit the nail on the head with, uh... You, you said the big Hank word. You said fun. That's what this one truly is. Yep. It's just kind of like it's a fun Star Trek movie to watch. It's a popcorn movie. It is a fun episode of the original series where we're not talking about anything particularly deep. We're just kind of like, oh, I, I really like that one. But we're just we're not commenting enough on the human condition for my personal liking, and that's why I, just, I I can't put it up in the pantheon of like greatest Star Trek films. It's you know it's it's cover at the bottom, but not so low because of mostly production design and it's just filmed really well and looks really nice everything about it is clean and tight and it looks well
1: i really like nicholas meyer's touch i like despite the fact that it's something roddenberry was very against i like the hints that more of a militaristic thing i mean it's not that they're the navy or that they're the air force or something patrolling space and doing it for the freedom of America, because I don't think there is something like the United States of America anymore in in the Star Trek universe, but it's like the Coast Guard, I guess. Like, they do keep things safe if there is a problem. If a fight breaks out, they're armed to take care of the situation, so it makes much more sense than them being dressed in the weird hippie, dippy clothes. I mean, the first movie is just very, very odd disco hippie clothing, and then throughout the TV show, it's mostly (laughs) T-shirts. They just wear some gold and blue T-shirts that's it like it's small details and things that you can appreciate i i can that much i mean with you i'm going to go ahead and say maybe at the 3.5 seems like a fair for this i mean it's not not entertaining. That's not the problems with it. It's a bunch of small little nitpicky details, but when you lay them all out flat on the table and you look at them, it's not really enough to give a negative review or take away from the movie. You can still enjoy it. It makes you question some of the motives of your characters, but if you could get through the last movie, where pretty much everyone betrays Kirk and he's got this god
2: complex that, I'm the captain of the ship. I can do whatever I want. You can get through anything. The problem when you end up talking about things like this it ends up being a lot more personal preference because you know people make lists all the time of their favorite um favorite series of films and what order you like them in and stuff like that and we just had a uh, a friday the 13th uh, and so everybody has to post their uh annual what friday the 13th movie is the best list and some of the lists, it's like I kind of agree with that, and some of the lists, I'm like, what fucking series of movies are you watching? How the fuck do you think part seven is the best for? And a lot of that also has to do with what age you are when things come out, how what impact it had on you when you saw it. I and I understand these things, but when you break something like Star down into its core fucking elements, I realize that I really like part six. When I was ten, it's because I was ten that I liked it. But I you know, I can look at it in a broader context now and just say it's a good movie, but ultimately it's empty. It's kinda empty and it doesn't really say too much, which is fine. Not everything has to say, you know, something grand every time, but with Star Trek I just I expect a little bit better, which again sounds like I'm pissing on it again, but <laughs> that's how this goes.
1: Yeah, there's not much you can do about it in this situation. I mean it's it's fun. That's the easiest thing to say. But what I I think is one of the most disappointing things about the entire feature is that this is the end. This is how we end this legacy. 25 years at this point in time into the series, had the animated series, you got the original show, all these legends, the legacy of Star Trek itself kind of goes out with a whimper. You would have truly expected some monumental bang, something fantastical happening, and then... The next fucking movie, we just kill Kirk, which is odd and makes no sense, and it doesn't well, matter. Well,
2: that's a weird situation, though, because it's not really Kirk. I mean, it is it's like a different, like, he's uh, It's not like a clone or anything, but it's not like, like, Kirk was already dead. He gets brought back, like, time and shit, so it's not like he's, you know what I mean? He died in the actual timeline, so, like, of old age or whatever the fuck he died of. It's not like... It's You might as well think of it not as Kurt getting killed, I guess is what I would say about Generations.
1: Yeah, because apparently the only person still alive by the time that Generations takes place is Dr. McCoy, and he shows up in the pilot episode at 130-some-odd years old, one of the final performances from the wonderful D. Kelly, too. You got to look at the year this movie came out and, and look at some of these guys' ages. D died in 1999, so he didn't really have much more to give, so I kind of feel... Again, I'll I'll keep repeating myself. This movie could have had a much bigger bang. I think there was a much more respectful way to let these guys out the door and usher in the new people. I, I, I don't know. So, I mean, it's just, uh, that's my biggest complaint. I think really that's where it comes down to, that we could have just shown these guys out a little bit better. I don't even, outside of one line of dialogue, I don't know what the fuck Chekhov does in this movie. Sulu's a captain of his own ship. That's good for him. I'm sure that only happened because he just won't stand in the same room with Lame Shatner anymore. By 1991, they didn't <laughs> seem to have a working relationship,
2: so they just fucking gave him the Excelsior. that's how you become a goddamn captain. Fuck this motherfucker. Ain't doing another movie with him well now you're a captain yeah he
1: apparently wouldn't he was very upset about doing the, the the fifth film and just did not want to work under bill he was fine working with him but this guy's gonna fucking direct the movie no way so he kind of Kirsty allied them and demanded it's probably where the budget for that movie went fucking george Takei took it home he did did not want to work with william shatner so this film he gets to become a captain which is cool i mean it's nice to maybe that's what i mean by it's not the best way to show these guys out the door that we could have at least given like the end of an 80s movie a little montage of what happens next Kirk goes back in time to 1986 and gets Van Halen to play his birthday. It's fantastic.
2: everybody has a really good time yeah I think you could do one of those final like hand wavy goodbyes situation for this because you kind of feel robbed that they're just kind of like all right we're gonna take it for take the ship around one last time and you could almost do with them kind of you would know, have been kind of an interesting ending for Star Trek. Six and this is like completely in another universe. If you could end the series with like Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and instead of like having Stephen Collins go to Viger have like the entire crew of the Enterprise going and becoming a part of this AI thing, and like really kind of give them a goodbye of like they're gonna explore this new realm of identity and. Uh, of a being, and like, their journey's going to get even crazier now and their age, something you no, know, not exactly like that, but something like that. You know, something where it gets really cosmic and like, um, and it's not just like, and then they all just sat around on their asses and died of old age on earth, the end.
1: well, pretty much this movie is a big allegory to the fall of the Berlin Wall because there's this denutralized zone, the DMZ pretty much, between. Klingon space and Federation territory, so that's going away, and it's going to truly be a bold new world. And we talk very regularly in the series of the edge of the galaxy, and how no one has been able to go past the edge of the galaxy. That would have been a great ending with somehow the Enterprise and its crew, a skeleton crew, just the necessary people bordering the edge of the galaxy, the infinite unknown, knowing that they have the power now, knowing that they can finally traverse into the unknown, and that could have been the end, you know, uh... Warp 11. Well, you we can't go to Warp
2: 11. We get some kind of supreme knowledge and, you know, like in the galaxy and going to go in like some bold new directions as opposed to just continuous space conflict is what Star Trek is coming. Uh, and not completely. I mean, Deep Space Nine had its own thing. Uh, Voyager had its own weird, crazy shit going on. But like... Let's really like make a difference in this this kind of this universe, and I don't mean literally this universe, the Star Trek universe. Let's make it about something kind of really outlandish and bold and crazy. We could really go in that, like, and be the ultimate journey and the ultimate searching for some sort of inner meaning or inner peace, as opposed to just kind of like, nah, this shit's just gonna continue.
1: It's strange that they're also excited about retiring, and Kirk brings that up at the beginning of the film. You know, in, in three months. We're about to retire. We're going to decommission the ship. This is ridiculous. Why are you doing this? But what else would they do? In the last movie, while they're having the whole discussion, Bone says to Jim, I thought you said men like us don't have families. And they have that little nice smile, and you realize... Their work, their work together, and what they do is all that they can do, that they aren't normal people, that, sure, they can go camping on R&R, but what sort of life would they leave, lead? This is the definitive existence for the crew of the Enterprise, and now in this movie, they're just happy to retire and do what? Go back home to Earth? That doesn't seem to make any sense with the last 25 years of who these people are. Write a are.
2: series of tech war books? No, that's
1: what Kirk's like... going to go back and do.
2: Well, right. I've got it. this idea, tech war.
1: He briefly tells the idea to a computer, and they write it for him. That may or may not Major be the truth.
2: Apparently, wrote tech war. Yeah,
1: because William Shatner hasn't written a fucking book in his entire life. Uh, <laughs> he he sure says he does, and his name's on a lot of them. But I don't believe a goddamn word that comes out of that guy's mouth. He came up with the name tech war, and somebody wrote a book around it. Yep. There you go. His own biography, I, I really strongly don't feel that William Shatner wrote it. And it's fun, and it's easy to make fun of him. Uh, and this film especially, because we do truly live leave all of our characters with that question of, well, why does he know goddamn Hitler quotes? But still... Shatner's performance throughout the whole series, I don't think this is really a remarkable role for him. I mean, it's very action-based. And it's funny, the last movie, he cherry-picked the position and gave himself the strongest lead character. And in this film, you would kind of assume he would do the same thing, but it's just more of a bravado-based thing. He's kind of a John Wayne character. It's definitely Captain Kirk. It just doesn't feel like our Captain Kirk. I think strongly, Wrath of Khan probably is the greatest lesson we learn and is probably the strongest of the entire series.
2: I think a lot of people give William Shatner uh, a whole bunch of shit of um, his performances and people are always making fun of how stilted he did the dialogue and Star Trek and all that. But I think William Shatner is a big component of what makes this work. Yeah. What makes these ridiculous ideas and all this in- insanity really work because he's fucking earnest. He's earnest in his portrayal of Captain Kirk and he didn't get along with everybody on the set. I mean, there's a lot of tension between all the different uh, performers, but like you wouldn't have had a show. Like a lot of you wouldn't have had a career if it wasn't for Shatner. It didn't work with Pike, and I'm not saying that it's because of that actor. And, you know, they did some retooling and changed show up a little bit. But when you brought in William Shatner, it really changed uh, like everything. It kind of changed the whole vibe and the feeling of the show. And it's just his presence. Uh, It's he does have a very authoritative presence, even when he's like shit talking you on Twitter. Like he's still like, I can't get mad at the motherfucker. I just can't. There is something
1: truly magical about William Shatner. And I think I'm not 100 percent sure. I think when they went to shoot the second pilot, the guy that played Pike just did not want to return because we have the original doctor. It's not McCoy. I think this is episode three of the original series. If uh, you guys at home want to go find that and watch it for yourself, but Kirk himself from that first time we see him, the trademark captain Kirk, he has always had a very uh, uh, fatherly presence. One of the original episodes is about a 17 year old with very strange powers and Kirk has to father him. And I think that itself became something comforting throughout the series that at least we knew we could get guidance from Kirk. We knew that we could rely on him. The very first movie that's the the twinkle in his eye, I guess you could say. When Kirk is introduced, I think, immediately when you're watching that film. And even for me, when I first saw this not being a big fan, it's like, there's Shatner, there's the boss. This Everything's about to really take off here. It's about to become magical. We're really going to see something adventurous. And I don't think anybody else is capable of doing that with just facial expressions. Just the little smirk and the raise of the eyebrows and... I think a lot of it too is how he delivers his lines and dialogue. There's something so inquisitive, and it's grandiose.
2: And actually, the thing that probably informs William Shatner, the actor playing Captain Kirk, is the same thing that informs Captain Kirk of who he is. It's the whole Kobayashi thing all over again. Like, what did Captain Kirk do? He reprogrammed the computer and cheated. Because that's, I mean, that he never tell me the odds type of situation, and I'll like, I'll figure this out. That's fucking Shatner. He's not like putting on too many airs to play the season. Like, he's kind of playing himself. So that's what makes it work. Well, what's glorious about watching the character is he is a farm boy from
1: Iowa, and when you watch this, you truly believe Captain Kirk is a farm boy from Iowa, because that's at its base what Shatner is. He's just a cowboy. He loves horses, he, he's a manly man, he has ridden the rodeo, he has farms, he's ranched, he's done it all, and it came out in this character, and it was the most perfect thing for him, because his nature as a human being is an exploratory one. If he wasn't an actor, he would have been some sea captain or something he would have traveled the world he would have still had a authoritative position and it's a shame that you know he can't be taken very well because if the crew had had a better working relationship i think we would have had a lot more i think more people would have been willing to participate but going into the 90s i don't want to just shit on george takai but i don't think most people could stand being around william shatner it really seemed Uh, like he's a lot I yeah. imagine he is a lot to be around at all times. Especially filming for 30 days and costumes and all this heat that it's just got to be kind of annoying to deal with. And, and a lot of it's rumors and stuff that you hear. It, mostly him and George just don't seem to care for each other. Or rather, George just doesn't seem to care for William Shatner. He seemed to be very close with DeForest Kelly. And it, it, it seems to me even listening to them in conversation, watching old interviews that William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy were pretty close that they had at least a bond and understood each other. And I really suggest, if you want to continue with Star Trek, find the Blu-rays. Some of the commentaries are absolutely wonderful. The ones by Nick Meyer kind of suck, but the ones with Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, it is just beautiful listening to them speak and hear them laugh, and they tell stories about all the other people. And they speak very fondly of everyone. There is no animosity. It was a very professional recording, and it's really, really nice. It made a lot of the experience for me... Because I didn't know anything about this. And hearing these guys, these were recorded uh, maybe two or three years before Leonard Nimoy died. Hearing them reflect on everything and talk about their past and Gene Roddenberry and the point of the show and the history of things, I think it really helped me gain an appreciation for this. Uh, And definitely an appreciation I'll continue. I'm not going to stop here. I'm going to end up watching the damn generation movies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm probably going to stop here. Yeah, somebody asked if we were going to continue this, and it's like, well, maybe next year we'll do Star Trek Month again, but that just might end up being me babbling about how I don't fucking <laughs> like data. And I'm really curious if they have all of this technology. In Star Trek Four, Bones just pulls out this tool and puts it to Chekhov's head, and it instantly fixes all the pressure and what would be a life-threatening thing.
2: Why the fuck is there a blind guy? Do they explain why he just can't like he can't he can see like just have to have a special device to let him see and eventually they do fix his eyes. But, you know, technology. Yeah, I know. That's just something that's been bothering me
1: getting into the next generation. Why is there a fucking blind guy 300 years into the future? If there's no money, but they can't fix this, we already got some problems with the series
2: in all honesty, it's very simple. It was an affectation. They could have his character to make him not an alien and not an android, and he still looked kind of interesting. Simple as that. After
1: 25 years, you just can't get away with pointed ears and funky eyebrows anymore. You actually have to start doing
2: something with these uh, characters. It's, yeah, it's, here's the thing. It makes him look different, give him like a, a, a bit of a character trait. But yeah, I mean, Star Trek has been fun to go back through. It's been fun to listen to Hank, who is like almost a, a complete version to Star Trek before we started all this and like hear him get into it and just like, you know, I've kind of fought this for a bunch of years, but this is really not all that bad. <laughs> I kind of like this.
1: And I, I hate saying this because we've we've garnered a lot of new fans and a lot of them are Trekkies and Trekkers. But what really pushed me away from the series was how a lot of fans treat people. And it's not necessarily Star Trek fans, but Star Wars fans are guilty of it. Marvel, DC, they're horror fans, everybody's guilty of it. But the the loudest people are usually the meanest and the dumbest people, and that's why they're the loudest. But unfortunately, you end up encountering the loudest people more often than the nice ones. So my former experience with Star Trek and just having an interest in it, I was really pushed away by the fans. And now that I've gotten into it and I've started talking to other people, it's a very
2: different fan base. It's intimidating. Yeah. Because when the fan base is as large as Star Trek, Star Wars, all this, and there's so many intricacies and people get obsessed with these things and they do all this painless research. And then they start talking about stuff and start bringing these things up. It's like, I don't even know what you're talking about and I don't care. I just like, like like me, I like the original series uh, movies, and I kind of like the just you know some of the original series, and that's about as far as my Star Trek love goes. But I can like can you face me as well as a well, you don't know anything about Romulan culture. So like, is that even fucking important? Just let me love the things that I love with Star Trek. I like these six movies the most out of all this whole universe thing that is, and that's about as far as I can take it. And if you love the all the intricacy nonsense, go ahead. But don't try to like push me away and call me like you know. Oh, you just you're illiterate to Star Trek. does. It, uh, uh, that's the part. Fans can be overbearing and they can be very protective of something that they have no need to be protective of. It's like when a random guy at a concert
1: asks a chick wearing a band T-shirt to name three songs. I bet you don't even really like them. It's it's a, a heavy mentality that comes with most fandoms that you you can't really escape. But once you get in and you find the good ones and you start enjoying yourself, anything can be pleasant. Now, this doesn't mean we're gonna jump the gun and do Star Wars or something like that in the future. Like but that. Yeah, uh, fuck that by all means. But this really has opened the door to I think a future of new content with Death by DVD because obviously we're able to explore things and even if we don't like it, have something nice to say. And by no means I don't I don't think there's a single film in the original series that I I don't like. Even part 4, I bitched about it going into it in those first two episodes, I complained, oh, we got to do the one about the whales. And then had a great time doing it. We had I I feel that was one of the strongest Star Trek episodes that we've done because There was just so much to talk about, and that's the series itself. You don't need to know anything about the ships. You don't need to know about the phasers and the guns of the Federation or even the names of the aliens. Up until this movie, the whole point was learning and knowledge, and there was a very important lesson that we were going to understand by the end of the film, whether it be about friendship, love, harmony, peace. It was always something that was very thought-provoking. And then this film ends with... I. I don't know. I, it just ends. This movie really just ends, and you're not left One with, trip you know. around the sun, boys. We gotta go do something. I don't know. Let's take her out to cruise and get some Octurian poontang. Uh, wrong movie. But Star Trek Six. it ends. And unfortunately, I guess that's pretty much gonna be the ending of this show, too. It's just gonna end. because <laughs> I don't have anything deep and philosophical, unfortunately, to say, because the movie ends without any clear message. The only thing that I can say is fucking... Kirk's a Nazi god damn it <laughs> I, I just don't <laughs> like it I mean it, that really is the, the, the that one moment he brings up Hitler and even Spock looks at him like what the fuck is wrong with you man um, Star Trek 6 the ashtray is full <laughs> and the bottle is empty we'll be back
2: next week that's it baby
0: Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.